Good morning, all. It's Wednesday, so it's Bible study. Glad that you are here with us. We are nearing the end of our Revelation study. This is chapter 20. We only got two more weeks after this week. And so I hope that you will stick with us all the way to the end. I know Revelation has been dense and thick and a little opaque, but I know that it has meant a lot to a lot of people. And it's been a real pleasure for me to be with you all during this study. So this is, I guess, what is it? It's not the penultimate week. It's the one before that. I forget. My English teacher would be disappointed. Um, but a reminder that we love comments. So questions, comments, please send them. Um, we'd love for you to be part of our online group with our email list. And so send Meredith Rose a note. You can get her email on our website or make a comment in the chat here together. Our website for RBS is stmichael.org slash RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. There, you can listen on SoundCloud to four years worth of Bible studies and begin to listen to this Bible study on our podcast for this class, as well as getting previous classes. They'll be backloaded over the summer for all four years of studies that we have done together so that access to those old classes will be as easy as possible. Lastly, I know that I've asked for feedback on what we may study next year. I've gotten lots of good ideas, um, things like the Apocrypha or Paul's letters like Galatians or go back to a gospel like John, which would be different than Luke we did years ago, um, as well as some topical studies, Isaiah, the prophets, things like that. So they're kind of all over the board. If you have an opinion or a desire, or maybe you don't really know which book, but you might want to have, like someone wrote and said, just something a bit more um, or something a bit less intense than, say, Revelation, which I love that, just less intense than Revelation, which is almost anything else. Um, even if you've just got an inkling about a feeling for something else, I'd love to hear from you. And so you can make your comments right here in the chat or you can send Meredith a note and we'll compile all those. And like I said, I'd love to pick so that the last study we do, first Wednesday of May, we may be able to announce what it is that we're gonna do next school year. So let me know what you think. Also comments, questions, and then just say hello to everybody. If you're watching on a social media platform, say hello, check in with a friend you may not have seen for a while, and keep the conversation about this class going as we study together. Let's open with prayer and we'll get started. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with grateful hearts for this gift of life. We ask that you fill us with your spirit, that we can continue to be your hands and feet of love in the world, and that what we choose to do, the actions that we take in our lives, can speak to your grace and your love for all people, for your entire creation. Today we hold before you all those in our lives who need your healing touch. Those who are anxious, frustrated, angry, those who are sick, those who may be near death, that your presence remains with them and that through us, your love may be known. All of this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go, chapter 20. Chapter 20 is gonna be divided up into two sections, relatively easy. We've got the thousand years, and after the thousand years. Those are our two sections today. So we're gonna begin with the thousand years. Now, before we jump into the actual verses of this chapter, I wanna take a note 
make a note about the idea of millennialism. There is, there are many, many threads. I mean, gosh, thousands of different threads of Christian theology out there, but there are a few major branches. And in recent centuries, there have, there's been a major branch of Christian thought that one might put under the umbrella of millennialism. And millennialism is, put simply, the idea that there is a thousand-year period in which God, through Christ, will make all things new. There's, it, it's a waiting period of sorts, but it's also where, <laughs> actually, this is where millennial millennialists, um, I can't say millennials, that's a generation, millennialists, differentiate between what happens in that thousand year period. Either it's a waiting period, it could be a period of judgment, it could be a period of, of um, action and recreation. Anyway, this is, this is a branch of Christian theology that I'm guessing most of the people on this study would not identify as being a part of that group, although maybe some of you grew up in those groups. Um, we've got millennialists, Premillennialists, postmillennialists, all of that connects with dispensationalism and predispensationalism or postmillennial dispensationalism. It's all kinds of jibber jabber. It is based on this chapter of Revelation. That's the point. Don't worry about really what it means. Don't go research or Google. It's going to be confusing. I simply want to acknowledge that Revelation chapter 20 has made a big impact in Christian thought. As Anglican Christians or potentially, you know, Protestant Christians or Catholic Christians, you know, wherever we fall on that spectrum, we're not directly impacted by this millennialist idea. But in the world, in our communities, we almost certainly have Christian groups that would anchor themselves in a millennialist idea. And so it's important for us to know if we ever hear that term millennialism, it comes really from this chapter of Revelation. And so we're going to unpack that a bit um, around this thousand years. So, <laughs> Steve has already made a comment. Um, he said, I thought we have a loving God. He seems a little vengeful in this book. What's that about? Okay, Steve, that's a great question and a good foundational idea for us to begin today's study. Revelation, you've heard me say it almost every single week. Revelation is not predictive, it is symbolic. It is symbolic as a way of encouraging Christians who are going through hard times. John in particular is writing in the first century and the Christians in the first century do not have an easy way. Until Rome makes Christianity legal in the fourth century, Christians are look down upon, they're tormented, they struggle, some in different parts of the Roman Empire, they're unable to trade and to make money the way that they need to, and on and on and on. Then we get into a period of time where they are genuinely tortured and killed, and the martyrdom has already begun in John's lifetime. It gets worse. But all of that is to say, the symbolism of Revelation is just that. It's not literal, it's not predictive, it is symbolic. The Bible, writ large, is inspired by good, faithful people. What that means is that 
I don't believe, nor does Anglican Christianity believe, that the Bible is literal or inerrant. We do not believe that. The Bible instead is inspired, and inspired by great people, but inspired nonetheless. Which means, when we hear stories of God in any capacity, God did a thing, God said a thing, God heard about, or whatever, what we have to remember is, a good, inspired person is writing this particular story. We cannot, at any point, take the Bible so literally as to say, why did God do that? That question is just not filled out enough. Instead, the question should be, why did that writer or author or that those people at that particular time think God did or said that thing? By looking at the way God is, uh, dis, uh, what do I want to say? By looking at how God is depicted in stories, what we do is we get a glimpse of what good faithful people in a particular place and time understood God to be and God to do. We, as faithful people now, get a chance to ask a very critical, thoughtful question, but faithful question, is that the best way for us to understand God today? The Bible is only meant to help create a foundation of our own discipleship. We are still active disciples in the world trying to discern what God is still doing. You know, God is still connected to acting and revealing in the world. That is fundamental to our understanding of God. So, 2,000 years ago, someone thought God said or did a certain thing. Does that still ring true to us based on a big contextual look at the Bible and also how we believe God has been working over the last 2,000 years? It's a really thoughtful, albeit complex, way to anchor and inspire our own discipleship. The idea, that particular idea, is absolutely critical to today's study. Whether we're talking about the thousand years, or the final judgment, or you name it, it's important for us to not stop short and say, why did God do that thing, or why did God say that thing, but instead take one more step to say, what is it about John and his experience of God that leads him to believe this particular idea about God or the nature of God or about heaven or hell or Satan or whatever. Go one step deeper and ask those kinds of questions because when we get to that deeper step, then we get to apply those ideas to our own life today. And that's really my hope, is that as we do these Bible studies and we wrestle with these ideas, it's not just esoteric, but instead it is absolutely applicable to the way that we choose to live today. And choosing to live and the actions we take will be very important at the end of chapter 20. So hang on. Thank you, Steve. Good question. And keep them coming. I like them. So first part of today's lesson, the 10,000 years. <laughs> Sorry, not 10. The thousand years. Let's look at the first few verses of chapter 20 together, right? Here we go. 
Then I, John, saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. (laughs) I love the way that ends. He must be let out for a little while. So we begin this chapter with a period of a thousand years. Broadly speaking, let's put this in context in the whole story of Revelation. Right at the end of chapter 19, we see that the beast and the false prophet are finally defeated. They are thrown down. They have been thrown into the lake of fire where they have burned up, but not the dragon, not the Satan. If you remember the progression in Revelation, we effectively get this dragon, the Satan, the fallen angel, right? Raises up the beast, and then the beast raises up the false prophet, that's the Antichrist, and we have, in essence, a chain of leadership, of evil, more or less, and God is slowly undoing that development. So we see that the armies of the earth and the false prophet and their inspiration and support, the beast, have all systematically been overthrown. And the beast and the false prophet false prophet have all been destroyed, thrown into the fire. The dragon, we see it, the serpent, the dragon, the devil, the Satan, all the same thing. That evil, the incarnation of evil itself, has not yet been destroyed in the fire. Instead, after the beast and the false prophet are destroyed, the dragon is bound up, chained, and thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years before he will be released once again on the earth to cause havoc again. Just hold that idea. We're going to go forward for the next few verses, and then we'll begin to unpack the whole first half of this chapter. Jump to verse 14. Let's continue. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. So, in the meantime, during this thousand years, the Satan, the dragon, has been bound up and thrown into the bottomless pit, chained up, covered up. In this thousand years comes the first resurrection the resurrection of the martyrs, those who apparently were beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They live again. They are resurrected and they reign with Christ during this thousand years. The rest of the dead, apparently, including those who are faithful but not martyrs, they're not yet resurrected. Okay, let's just, let's pause and acknowledge we've got a couple obvious issues that we could take with these first few verses of chapter 20. First, why does Satan get locked 
up in a pit, only to come out and wreak havoc again a thousand years later. I mean, couldn't Satan have just been destroyed along with the beast and the false prophet and like, we could have been done with all this? Second, what can we make in general of this thousand year period? Why are some resurrected and not others? Why do we even have two resurrections? Or if we are, we really want to parse it out, we almost have like three resurrections if we go back to chapter six, but perhaps chapter six is informing this first resurrection. That's a perfectly fine way to understand this. Regardless, why two resurrections? What does that really mean? So we've got these two questions and I'd like to unpack both of them. So we're gonna start with, why does Satan get locked up, not burned up? So we're gonna see in the second half of chapter 20, that there is a release of Satan to effectively do his worst. And God will ultimately, finally, defeat the evil for good. One way to look at this is God has been fighting many battles and God is winning the battles, but the war is not yet over. The war is ultimately when the dragon, the Satan, is destroyed. We will see that coming at the end of chapter 20. So then it begs the question, why wouldn't the Satan just be destroyed altogether? I want to bookmark that because we need a little bit more in chapter 20 to, I think, make a complete picture. Just know that there is, there seems to be some purpose in what John is doing and how John is telling the story such that the Satan comes back out and has an opportunity, a final chance to sort of hold its ground and make a stand before God really triumphs once and for all. Second question I asked is what really does the thousand years mean, right? The symbolism of revelation means that we should absolutely not take the thousand year period literally, What, right? Don't start now. Remain symbolic in these ideas. It's not literally a thousand years, but it is a long period of time. There is a point of time that is significant in which the martyrs for good, the martyrs of God, are recognized for their extreme, exceptional faithfulness. Chapter 20 is ultimately about the final judgment. Before we get to the final judgment, there is in a sense this reward period where those who have been martyred for God are recognized for A plus work in the world, so to speak. A thousand years, it doesn't really matter. There is simply a moment at which the good people who were faithful to God are differentiated, so to speak. There's being good, and then there are the martyrs. Interestingly, in liturgical traditions, like in the Episcopal Church and the Catholic Orthodox churches, we see this differentiation play out in November when we have all saints and all souls. There has been a decades-long, almost shorthand for all saints, where we talk about all saints as being all of the departed, right? Where everybody's thrown in the bucket together. It's, you know, 
Mother Teresa and your Aunt Sally, right? Everybody's in the bucket. However, the classic understanding is really rooted in this idea. There are saints and then there are souls. There are all the saints and they really are the saints. I mean, we're talking the, the martyrs of the church, those that have been exceptional and have done amazing work. And we know them as saints, but we can also consider that martyrdom in some way is an exceptional way to profess faith in Christ. Then there are all the rest of us who are faithful people, who make good choices and bad choices, but we are in the aggregate moving ourselves in our discipleship closer and closer to God. We are all the souls. At St. Michael, we actually differentiate these two celebrations. On one Sunday in November, the first Sunday of November, in the morning we celebrate all saints. And it is really joyous, joyful. We talk about all the saints of the church. And then in the evening, we celebrate all souls. And all souls is a celebration, but it is a more solemn celebration because it's a bit more personal. We celebrate the lives of the good people we actually knew, right? Could be family members, friends, neighbors, you name it. The celebrations are both truly joyful, but the All Souls moment captures all the good people versus the All Saints moment where the exceptional martyrs and saints of the church are recognized for their exceptionalism. We see that kind of differentiation here where you almost have a first really excellent group and then a second really good group, right? I'm going to be in the second group, I hope. Here's to hoping. Part of what we see here in Revelation 20 is an echo of Daniel chapter 7. So I want to read a portion of Daniel chapter 7, basically verses 9 through 14. I'm going to cut out a few bits. But I want you to listen to how Daniel 7, in a sense, prefigures or inspires Revelation 20. Right, so here's Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 9 and jump through verses 14. As I watched, now this is Daniel, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Sound familiar? I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Much of what is happening here in Revelation 20 is based on ideas that root themselves back in Daniel. John is part of a continuous thread of apocalyptic literature. That's why I wanted us to do Daniel at the beginning of this school year. We can't study Revelation and vet Revelation well unless we know the kind of literature, ideas, and theology that launch Revelation's ideas. 
Much of what's happening in this story can be understood as kind of in process with Christ from the very beginning of his incarnation. So what I want us to potentially see is Daniel was understood. Daniel was written during and after the exile and began to be understood as predicting the future coming of the Messiah. Jesus came. The Messiah on earth, we believe in his divinity as the Son of God and his humanity, and he became a Messiah that people were not expecting. What John does here is he connects the dots from predictions, eh, you know, but at the time they were believed to be predictions, prophecies of people like Daniel directly to the person of Jesus, and then retells the story in such a way that actually nails down Jesus as the Messiah, the one who is anointed, and the one who works with the Ancient One to finally repair and judge and recreate the entire world. There is the big connection between Jewish prophetic identity and messianic prophecies and what Revelation is trying to do here. Really kind of close the story in a very thoughtful, intentional way so that everyone understands where Jesus fits in this thread. Why that's important for us to understand is that it is very possible that deep in John's theology is the idea that this millennial time, this thousand years, actually begins with the incarnation of Jesus. So John and his churches and all of the faithful are actually part of this thousand year period where Jesus has come, Jesus is reigning, his impact has changed the world forever, but evil is not gone. Evil is just in process of being destroyed. And that there will be a point at which evil will be destroyed once and for all in total. And when that moment comes, the creation will be made new. I actually kind of like that interpretation. So in a sense, we are in this period of time where the thousand years, maybe they were there with Jesus, maybe they're over. But one thing is clear. Evil is not gone. Evil has, in fact, had an opportunity to flare up once again, and God will, at some point, defeat the evil forever and for good. Hmm, you know, that sounds good right now. But as you know, the Bible nudges us and points us in multiple different directions depending on where we are in our own journey and which book we happen to be reading at one time. So I think I'm going to pause there and maybe draw the first half of today's lesson to a close. I've seen a few texts come through, so I want to kind of take a look and see what people are saying. So take a minute, have a breather, think about what <laughs> I was about to say, think about what is unclear and what you might want to ask, which is like everything. Um, but if you've got a question, I'd love to hear about it right now because somebody else is wondering the same thing. I know y'all this is dense and this is confusing and weird, but 
I do think put all together, I'm going to get to a point, I promise today, where at the end of chapter 20, we can really take a nugget from this study that I hope will influence our lives well. So, mm -mm. oh, David writes about inspiration. Um, obviously, in terms of so David asks, um, God breathed, inspired. Um, if it's not actually the word of God and inerrant, how can we trust the lessons in this chapter? Okay, that's a good tweak um, of that question. So I'm going to hold that. Um, oh, Howard asks about Gog and Magog. So we're, um, we, <laughs> first off, that's just a really excellent name, like Gog Magog, is great. Um, we're going to, have we jumped into Gog Magog yet? I don't think I'm quite there yet. So we're getting there. That's the second section. Um, I, I'm about to read Gog Magog in just one minute. Um, I'd like to play with this question of how can we trust, if not the literal inerrant word of God, how can we trust the lessons? It's a really good question, and I don't want to treat it cheaply. We are part of a community of disciples. One of the reasons why I am so highly committed to church communities is the fundamental idea that we simply cannot follow Jesus as we should alone. And I know last week somebody had an issue with the Desert Fathers and that sort of stuff. Um, that's fine, I don't mind. Um, I, I am very clear. We cannot do this Christian thing. We cannot be Christian, we cannot fulfill the purposes of our own discipleship and use our gifts in full without one another. We've got to be in community with one another. In a sense, all of the writers of the biblical books are part of our extended community. We have from them, these incredible faithful people, the ways in which they understand God. They are to me, and I think for all of us, teachers and leaders, but they are still human. And so just as no one of us can know the complete fullness of God, none of them can either. Note that Jesus didn't write a book. Jesus remained an oral teacher. Jesus helped bring in a new period of time in which the Spirit actually fills us up always. Pre-Christ, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was there, but the Spirit fell upon people episodically. So occasionally, the Spirit would fill someone up to do a certain thing, and then the Spirit would sort of leave. What happened with Jesus is a new teaching, a new reality in which we can be filled with the Spirit all the time, not just momentarily. It is that Spirit within us, that God in us, 
that helps us do the best we can with all of the imperfections of our own humanity to follow God. All of the people who wrote the books in the Bible were also imperfect humans. Their imperfections simply mean that they are limited in their capacity to understand the fullness of God. I don't want us to let perfection get in the way of the good. In other words, I don't want us to hold up Scripture as either perfect, infallible, and errant, or imperfect and totally wrong. It's not dualistic like that. They're not mutually exclusive. It is a sliding scale. In fact, there are countless books that were written by faithful people trying to tell the story of God or of Christ that were not included in the Bible. And why weren't they included? Could be that they were incomplete. We didn't have a complete record. But it's mostly because they never became authoritative. So if I can just pause with a little side tangent. The Bible as we know it. (laughs) First off, when I say the Bible as we know it, which Bible am I talking about? Catholics, multiple Orthodox, different branches of Orthodox Christianity, Protestants, Anglicans, all have a different Bible, a different collection of books. They're not the same. The Bible that we read as Episcopalians really has three sections to it. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. We know that. And then we've got the Apocrypha because the Apocrypha for Episcopalians is important yet not quite as authoritative as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't take issue with me. Roman Catholics incorporate what we call the Apocrypha into the Old Testament. So if you look at a Roman Catholic Bible, you've got two sections, Old Testament, New Testament. But the Old Testament for Catholics includes what we call the Apocrypha. If you were to look at a Protestant Bible, you have no Apocrypha. It's simply the Old and the New Testaments, just like an Episcopal Bible, without the Apocrypha being pulled out. So if you have an NRSV, which is what we use in the Episcopal Church, you've got that third middle section. If you've got a clearly Protestant Bible that's not a study Bible, well, they may call it a study Bible, but it's, sorry, forget I just said that. If you've got a Protestant Bible, you almost certainly do not have the Apocrypha. Or if you do, it says with Apocrypha on the front or on the spine, because it's very clearly not the real Bible for Protestants. All of that is to say, (laughs) the Bible is dynamic, and the Bible shifts depending on which branch of Christianity you're in, which is why I think the most faithful way for us to understand the Bible is as a collection of excellent, even authoritative, inspired books written by people who can be our teachers and our leaders, our guides, toward the full, complete knowledge of God that none of us can reach in this, on this earthly plane, in this earthly life. I think I will stop there. If there's a follow-up, let me know, because this is an important idea. Christians, when Christians, 
lose their anchor to their imperfection is when things go very wrong. I'll put that in another way. When Christians forget to be humble in front of God, they do bad stuff. We see that throughout history where Christian, especially Christian leaders, believe they know it all, that they are 100% right, and then they do the bad stuff. And we should not succumb to that kind of temptation in which we think we know enough to say what is and is not complete truth. Kimberly just said, um, what does it mean to not be authoritative? How decided? Oh, yes. Um, and it's all based on what some, yeah, men, yes, um, decided was authoritative, right? Yes. So mm-mm, let me see if I can do like two minutes of how the Bible came to be. At some point, people began to write down what was in history oral tradition. By oral tradition, I mean the five books of Moses, the Torah, connected with the rest of the Tanakh, right? The Ketuvim and the, and the, um, the Old Testament is based on three different parts. You've got Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, which is effectively the law, the writings, and the prophets. Not, most of that was not written first, but rather told orally from one generation to the other, right? Almost like um, fairy tales or nursery rhymes or fables or whatever you want to say. They were telling the story of their history. As you know, if you play telephone, those stories change and evolve and often can certainly become better, but they change. That's just the way it works. At some point, they were written down so that the change that happens naturally with oral tradition became much smaller. So scribes then began to transfer from one scroll to the next the stories that at some point had been written down. So they were codified, okay? Codified in a particular way in time. Now over the hundreds of years, the centuries before Jesus, those codified stories were read aloud in worship, family in family homes and synagogues, you name it. Naturally, those communities began to feel more inspired and more led by certain stories than others. Over the centuries, the ones that simply didn't speak to people as much or seemed as helpful were kind of shelved in the library. And the ones that were really helpful were used in worship over and over and over again. Now fast forward to where Jesus was living. Very similar idea happened. The disciples at first really thought Jesus was coming back right now. So they didn't write stuff down. That's why most of the Gospels were written decades after Jesus' life. It wasn't until Jesus' actual disciples, those he called and walked with him in life, began to die that they realized, oh, well, maybe we need to write this stuff down. There were other Gospels written that did not end up in our Bible. 
you can Google this. If you just Google non-canonical gospels, you'll see there are dozens. Many of those gospels are in pieces because scrolls have been discovered and they're not one complete story, but a few of them are. And they're brilliant to read. They're still faithful stories of Jesus. But in the same way that certain Old Testament books became more helpful than others, over the first few centuries of Christianity, certain gospels became more helpful than others. Certain letters by people like apostles like Paul, John, Peter, and others, they became more helpful than others. Those more helpful books were simply put in rotation more often in Christian worship, in the same way that certain prophets and others had been put in rotation more often in Jewish worship. It was not until the 1500s, okay, 1500 years after Jesus' life, that what we know as the codified Bible, the actual canon of the Bible, was officially finalized. Even though it was that long, to be honest, it had already more or less been formed. It just wasn't officially nailed down as this particular set of books in this particular order until about 1500. That's one of the reasons why the reformers in the 1500s took issue with certain books being in the Bible versus others, and why Reformed Christians, the Protestants, like Lutherans and Presbyterians and others, threw out a whole set of Old Testament books that we call the Apocrypha because they didn't think they should be officially in the canon of the Bible. Good, but not canonical. I'll stop there because I could talk more and more about that. And I want to get into the second part of chapter 20, so keep those questions coming because I think they will inform what we can take from the rest of chapter 20 altogether. So we're going to jump into, we did the thousand years, now we're going to do after the thousand years. Turn to verse 7 with me. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Pause there. The thousand years have ended. Satan has been released from his prison. Again, this is a strange moment, right? It seems unnecessary or at least redundant that in the scheme of Revelation, we get, in essence, the same kind of thing that happened with the beast, which is a chance to influence the people of the world, and then you get some that follow God, some that follow the Satan. Satan gathers up all of the people who worship and follow him into this final, what seems like will be a final battle, except this time, there is no real final battle. Because as the evil, evil armies threaten the saints of the earth, right, we see as they begin to surround the camp of the saints, fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Harkens back to Ezekiel, right? We've, I'm sorry, Elijah. We've got this moment where 
God throws fire to the earth, destroys once and for all the evil followers of Satan, and then Satan, at long last, gets thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet where they will be tormented. And in other words, they are finally destroyed. So why does this have to happen? I'm going to go with N.T. Wright on this and say probably the best way to interpret this is that evil, to be defeated once and for all, must be loosed to do its worst so that it can actually be cleansed. You know, weeks ago I talked about the idea, and it's, sorry, I was a bit graphic, um, of if you get an infection in your body, right? An infection impacts the health of our bodies. We can die from infections if we don't treat them. And sometimes infections can be so bad that we actually have to be hurt more in order to be ultimately cleansed, right? If you get, well, I'm gonna stop there. I'm not gonna give <laughs> examples of this, but if you think about real infections, not just like put somebody that's born on your finger kind of stuff, but real infections, to get rid of the infection, we almost have to be more aggressive than the infection itself and hurt the body even more than the infection is at that point in order to make sure the infection doesn't ultimately kill us. In that sense, I think the Satan is released again in order to root out everything, right? I mean, Satan gets this one last shot, like go do your worst and God will still triumph in the end. John's pointing out the need for evil to be fully rooted out, fully exposed, so it can be defeated. This is very important for us because it points to the complexity of our own imperfection. None of us escape imperfection. We are all, in a myriad of ways, imperfect. And our imperfections are complex and they run deep. Revelation, in a sense, takes all of that into account. John knows that to cleanse the world of its imperfections, of its evil, that means that the evil needs a chance to fight back. That cleansing will need to be far and deep, not just one shallow moment, but it is layered upon layer upon layer. And so, as I noted earlier, in a sense, God fights battles against evil over and over and over again, chipping away and going deeper and deeper and deeper until finally we get to the root of the evil, the Satan himself. And at that root moment, God's triumph over evil is full, entirely done, complete. For us, we can understand our own faithfulness, our own faith journey in a very similar way. We can't, in one moment, turn every problem, every imperfection of our lives around. We can make strides, and we can overcome certain points, behaviors, perspectives that draw us away from God. But routing out one of those doesn't take care of all of them, and again and again and again, we are called to reflect on our own brokenness and on our own sinfulness, our own imperfection, and make strides to overcome 
our own sinfulness over and over and over and over again. And so Revelation in its redundancy seems a lot like the way in which we actually follow Christ in our own discipleship. Oh my goodness, multiple texts just popped. Um, Yeah, Liz says, without evil, there would be no sense of good. Absolutely. I think that you don't know one thing without knowing its inverse. I was told once when I was, gosh, probably in middle school, um, a teacher used the image of kind of digging a hole. Unless we experience pain and heartbreak and loss in our own lives, digging a hole, so to speak, we don't actually have the capacity to be filled up with goodness and love. In other words, we know that when people experience deep, profound pain and hurt, they can experience the highest, most profound love, grace, and hope. If one has not experienced much pain or loss, it's hard to really grasp what Christ offers us. It's hard to really grasp the power of love if you've not known the heartbreak, loss, and pain. So yes, I think that's great. Um, Is there an element that would say that we need to be tempted by Satan in order to resist and claim God over Satan? Very similar idea, right? We... We, in our human condition, are tempted. Overcoming the temptations actually move us closer to God. We, you know when you work out and you break down your muscles? The only way to build up muscle is to break down muscle, right? So you kind of get this weird inverse. Unless you sort of create the micro perforations within muscles, you don't give muscle a chance to grow. And it's when the muscles are torn in those microperforations that new muscle forms, and that's how muscle grows. I think that's a perfect example of what it means to be a disciple, right? We are constantly broken down and healed, broken down and healed. And the more brokenness we experience and the more we seek after God in that brokenness, the stronger we become in our own discipleship. So in that sense, yes, we have to be tempted. And let's face it, we have to succumb to temptation. We don't have to. We do succumb to temptation and we acknowledge how we succumb to temptation. And it is in that acknowledgement and that seeking to be healed by God that actually draws us closer to God because we become stronger for it. That virtuous cycle happens over and over and over again. It is not enough for us to be once and done. We seek God every day. We acknowledge our brokenness every day and we become stronger when we seek God's healing every day. This is, really, this is a really good thread. Hold that idea because I'm going to hit it again once we actually finish chapter 20. Let's just finish the whole way. So jump into verse 11 and we'll finish the rest of this chapter. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. 
and the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into that lake of fire. So at this point, the dead are judged. This is the final judgment. God's taking his seat on the throne for this final judgment. And John is very clear in the way that he tells the story that the book of life is the most important book. And it contains the works of the dead. All right. This is what I wanted to get to. Because same thread of idea around this temptation and faithfulness and the works that we do, the way that we live in the book of life, which is the book that holds all the works of the dead, God will use the book of life, the works of the dead, in order to pass final judgment. So final judgment in the history of Christian thought is important. Perhaps the most important shift in Christianity came with the shift in idea of judgment and justification. Many of you likely know the idea of sola fide. Sola fide is justification by faith alone. This is that Martin Luther moment with the Reformation where there is a massive shift, major theological shift in Christian thought that we are saved, we are justified by faith alone. Interestingly, the idea of sole fide doesn't quite work with what we see here in Revelation. Even though it became the bedrock of Christianity in America, I mean, I think that regardless of what church you're in in America, there is this sense of justified by faith alone. That's it. Theologically speaking, there's a little bit of a problem with that justification by faith alone when it is understood to be a moment. That's the problem. Many branches of Christianity have taken this idea of sola fide and made it a moment where you are born again and you are saved forever, period. Here in Revelation, we have a slightly different idea right? The dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the book of life. We are wrestling here with what is important about justification, about salvation, faith or works. I am pretty sure all of us are happy to agree that faith and works are both important. If we anchor the moment we pivot toward God at this justification by faith, totally good. But if we anchor justification and salvation alone in that one moment, I think it is problematic. We are meant to receive the Spirit of God in Christ and then reflect that Spirit in the world. That is really what it is we are called to do. The work of the Spirit in us, produces an overall life that is good. Put another way, we might be justified by faith alone, but true justification 
means we will produce truly good works. Both matter. Faith begins our journey. The works that we do are born out of that healthy faith and that healthy rootedness. And then finally, we see here at the end of chapter 20, the end of death itself. Now, you've likely heard me or some other preacher say that through Christ, death itself is defeated. The resurrection means death is defeated forever. Here, we see that symbolic defeat of death in verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death, even hell itself, are destroyed. That means that evil itself ceases to exist. When we shift into the last two chapters of Revelation, we will see that the recreation, the new creation, is actually full and completely good. There is no other place where evil exists. Evil is now gone for good forever. And in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, in the new everything, it is 100% good. It's not just that the good are here and the bad are over there. All is good. All is remade. All is renewed and healed, period. And that's, that's some good stuff. So, I know that we've reached the end of our time, and I hope you will have more questions. I have loved all these questions today. It is so helpful to know kind of what you're thinking and what's out there because it gives me a chance to, you know, pop off on my little rabbit trail. But I hope it helps you. I mean, I hope it actually kind of brings this down to the ground so you can leave with a nugget that gives you the opportunity to potentially live lives that are moving more and more toward God. That's our big hope. So if you've got questions after this chapter, email Meredith. We will get to them, I promise, next week or the last week. Two more weeks of Revelation, my friends. Two more weeks. Hang in there. We're almost there. And as I noted at the beginning, if you've got ideas about next year, send them my way. I hope you all have a wonderful week. God bless you, and I will see you soon. Bye.